It's a particular shade of green that appeared to me that night. Almost black at first, its mossy tones revealed themselves only as it spread outward toward the deckled edges of the paper, the torn fibers buckling with the approach of too watery pigment. It happened during one of our regular paint and spills, a group therapy session for couples where everyone renders a painful memory in watercolor, and then we all weep together in a circle for what frankly seems like too long. Every night ends with us huddled around a folding table covered with a plastic tablecloth in the storeroom where we wipe away tears with our cocktail napkins and try to forget the things that other people have painted. Sometimes it can be hard to juggle the Dixie cup full of wine while also trying to snag a cube of cheese on a toothpick from the bowl. But I had found if you tape eight toothpicks together end to end, it can make it a little easier. I was there solo that night, but when Galinda comes with me, she discourages me from using the extended toothpick method. She says it causes a scene. Anyway, that's what I was painting on the night in question, me proudly snagging a block of dill Havarti with a column of toothpicks when I was mixing the colors, attempting to match the green of the dill leaves embedded in dairy. But as soon as I set my brush to page... I realized I had more paint than I should have had on the brush and started forming immediately into a large, puddly splotch. A splotch that seemed to be pulsing at me, a strange signal from another place and time, something familiar but distant. I tore the page out of the pad, carefully set it to the side of my station, and then once it had dried during the wine and weep, I rolled it up in my yoga mat that I carry everywhere to let people know I do yoga sometimes, and brought it home to look at later that night. A little tipsy from two paper cups of rosé, I ducked into my meditation chamber and unrolled the painting of the mysterious green splotch. This curious portal of color was vibrating at a very high frequency, and friend, Maybe it was the wine and a good cry, but I was vibing along with it. It wasn't so much that I felt myself slipping into another reality. Instead, I felt the urgency of being increasingly present. This color was the key. It did not take long for me to imagine it come rushing into my immediate space, bleeding through the paper and running in smooth sheets across the marbled surface of my desk, pouring down its wooden sides, seeping into the carpet, forming reflective puddles where the floorboards warped from a leak long ago. Cascades of it lashed against the walls. The windows seemed coated in a thin film of the stuff. Suddenly, I was inside a memory, and everything about that memory was informed by this single particular shade of green. The way that sometimes you get on the subway, and you slowly notice everyone is wearing the same color. A maroon hat, a maroon scarf, a woman with hair, dyed maroon, a pair of shoes, a shoulder bag. And you wonder, how was it that everyone decided this was the thing to wear? And how did it come to be that everyone is on the same car of the same train, going in the same direction? Were we all part of a simulation? Or are there forces more divine guiding us, nudging us through color, encouraging us to find the pattern, follow the path, access that which you had no previous access to? What strange forces are at work? that lead us to seeing something familiar for the first time. The screen that came flooding in is the color of your eyelids when you close your eyes fast after staring into the sun. It's the color of the iridescent feathers on a pigeon's neck. 
For me, it was the color of the stones of the stone walls in northern Vermont, the walls that ran through the tiny mountain town with its one white church and its many red barns, the ones they took photos of when the leaves were turning and they'd been made into postcards that were sold at the general store. This place, where I would spend so much time as a child, was to me something special and sacred and like that church's spire, pristine. But in fact, it was a place of deep green secrets where the stones in those walls bore witness to the unusual and the unexpected all along. But because they were stones, they said nothing and just kept on being stones, giving the false sense that everything was always the same and nothing moved in this static place. But ask around, and most of the stones of those low stacked walls were displaced, dislodged, and broken, forever torn away from their former selves and companions. They only arrived in their current position, through a series of shocking, often violent disruptions. The walls were mostly greenstone and gneiss, formed millions of years ago in the slow crush of colliding oceanic basins, layers pressed into one another, forming uneven bands of white, gray, and black across their middles, borrowing from one another a shared history of commingled origins. Boulders of this kind were rolled smooth by the advance of glacial ice sheets, pushed into spaces far from where the oceans and lake beds they once knew. When the great shelf retreated, they'd be raked back in earthen tides that cleaved and fractured the mighty stones. They were scattered in places where rocks weren't meant to be and never were before. The process took forever, but the rocks remembered. With each thawing frost, the displaced rubble warmed just a bit. The soil around it would expand slightly, forming a narrow gap big enough for the ants and the weevils to move through, weakening the dirt a little more, making room for the rock to shift and settle. They sat for centuries before they felt the strike of a plow or pickaxe. Loose stones were a hindrance to the farmer's fortunes in an otherwise fertile field, and so required excavation and relocation. The stones were tossed and piled in rows around the tree line, hugging the rise and rift of the hillsides, a way to mark the edge of that which once was wild. The flatter stones would be stacked to form high walls, a pen for the hog, a stable for the horses. Those unsuitable for such construction would be placed in horizontal columns that stretched for miles, meant to deter unwelcome trespass from man or beast. The settlers of early Vermont moved as many stones as the glaciers had, imposing great lines of mine and not yours through pine forests and groves of maple. From their very first moment the stones were moving, watching. They knew that nothing remained the same, that existence is not one thing. It took me a little while to catch on, and so I thought about this color. I thought about how it could be found in the low rock wall that held the ground in place around the side of the house we used to go to. We called it the farm, but it had not been a working farm for some time. The walls here could have been the old foundation of the original barn, the one that stood before the fire, the fire that no one would assign blame for, even though Dad said the son was responsible. An accident, maybe, but still no one said the words out loud. It was something that was buried, but the rocks knew. They saw it, but kept the secret in between themselves in the gaps and crevices of the wall, the ones big enough to retain secrets and stay wet year-round, holding moisture from the deep snows in January and the cool rains in April. It's where a cricket could practice its leggy calls for a mate, or a field mouse could take a drink, a sip from the same rainwater that also filled the rushing creek that ran along the front of the farm. The sound of that creek, green noise, is the sound we fell asleep to every night. 
The sound we woke up to. The sound I miss on summer nights when I am somewhere not there. The blackish green was also the color of the striped garter snake that slid quickly through the grass as I was heading to the compost pile. It had found a beam of morning sun, but when I approached it darted through the yard and back into one of those deep holes along the base of the wall. Seeing it almost made me drop the plastic tub I was carrying, the tub whose triangular shape meant it tucked perfectly into the corner of the sink, the tub which had to be emptied each morning and evening into the bin out back. As far as chores go, I didn't mind taking out the compost in the morning. The tub was always warm from spent coffee grounds, which formed a base for a scattering of broken eggshells and half-eaten crusts, or a moldy berry unused in the pancakes. I remember the smell of that compost tub, as if I'm holding it in my hands right now. I think of it, too, whenever I make coffee and need to grind the beans, the odor wafting up from the grinder and filling the space above the bread box and around the stove. You'd walk the tub out the door and up the stone steps, two or three larger stones laid flat, a break in the run of the wall. The grass was always wet with dew, and the longer you walked through it, the darker the tips and sides of your sneakers became, absorbing moisture with every step. You'd have to leave them out on the porch for the day to dry out, if you'd hoped to wear them again later. Or it meant wearing your dress shoes, which were still stiff and gave you blisters on your heels. Now you know to anticipate this, and for the first week or so, you put two band-aids on the back of your foot where the shoe is sure to rub. The compost pile was in its own stoned-in area, closer to the garden. I tossed the morning collection of the wriggling, steaming pile full of thick brown worms. The rich soil that would be shoveled out of that bin would be used for the garden beds with the peas and the squash blossoms and the zucchini, and it would be scattered among the beds that ensured an impressive bloom of bright orange tiger lilies that lined both sides of the earthen driveway. Under mostly sunny skies. This is Noah Weather Radio WXM. Before the compost run, I'd sit at the table with some arrangement of the people who were there my mother, my grandfather, and the family friends, Earl and Helen Toomley, who owned the farm. There was a helpful Roberta, a spinning wheel made of wood. I no longer call it a lazy Susan following a harrowing night being lectured to by one Susan Nielsen, Glenda's friend who owns a catering business, but tore her rotator cuff and now can't handle the trays like she used to. Anyway, she seemed to take it personally when she asked for soy sauce, and I spun the formerly known as Lazy Susan around to her, saying, let Lazy Susan take care of it. Here in the kitchen on the farm, the spinning wheel would hold a small glass container of fresh jam bought that week from the farmer's market in town. Strawberry jam that we'd spread on homemade bread dropped off by Leslie, the man who kept the fields mowed and drove the school bus and plowed the roads and was also an amateur baker. Whenever he came by to mow, Leslie would deliver a new loaf of whole grain wheat wrapped in plastic. The bread would toast up in an old metal toaster that always had a little bit of crumb burning in it and I'd eagerly spin the serving wheel around so that I could reach the jam. I'd push whole strawberries into the toast with the bottom of a spoon. It was never as sweet as I wanted it to be, a mere fruit-forward whisper of the sugary jams and jellies we'd buy at the Acme store back home, but I ate it, trying not to let any of it glop onto my soft brown corduroys. My grandfather would warm his coffee in the microwave, a device he would devote years of his life and many, many meals to. His thirty-second eggs in a cup were a revelation— his microwave trout, less so. When he sat back down, he'd reach over to the wooden hutch where the silverware was kept and turn on the white rectangular radio that sat next to a stack of local newspapers and circulars. 
They may have gotten other stations, but the station we listened to in the morning was the weather station. A buzzing shortwave signal would relay the forecast for today, tonight, and the week ahead. The voice sounded like it was automated, programmed to read copy about clouds and high-pressure systems in a relentless monotone, words tumbling over one another like rocks turned to pebbles under the weight of a glacier. Sometimes Helen would have to use a straw to drink her microwave coffee on account of the tremors she had in her head and hands. They weren't constant at that point. They'd get worse later, but she would have long stretches where you could barely tell. Earl would already be outside in the new barn or walking along the far edge of the property, having enjoyed a pipe on the porch before setting out. Tapping the base of the pipe into the palm of his large, leathery hands to dislodge any remaining tobacco, a signal that it was time to get on with the day. Inside, a perfect morning in Vermont, around that kitchen table, the spinning wheel in the center, the radio on low, grinding out the weather, me sitting on a pillow as a booster seat to better reach the jam. Sunday night, partly cloudy. Lows in the lower 20s. Green has always been a most slippery hue, assigned to it a wealth of contradictory meanings. It can just as easily serve as a symbol of good luck, new growth, and abundant fertility. But it can quickly shift to undermine those same virtues with poisonous tendrils of envy or greed, sickly infection, and secret magics of the unliving. For years, radioactive elements were used to make things glow in the dark. Uranium glass still emits an eerie fluorescent sheen when held under a black light. But perhaps there is no more perfect example of Green's ability to be both deadly and beautiful than the horrible history of the Green known as Shields Green, named for its creator, the pharmaceutical chemist and the man who discovered oxygen, Carl Wilhelm Scheele. His vibrant green was made in his lab by heating sodium carbonate, adding arsenious oxide, stirring to dissolve, and then adding a copper sulfate to the final solution. It's the arsenious oxide, or arsenic, where things went wrong. What Scheele had done was invent a color that approximated nature at its most lush, free of brown undertones that muddied other shades. The tint was a welcome reprieve from the cold-clouded skies of the Industrial Age. All of London, choking under the soot of progress, welcomed Shields Green into their homes. It was used to make fabrics, papers, paints, and sweets. It was sewn into bustles and bonnets and affixed to the walls. But at some point, the green would start to fade slightly, losing its glow. Exposed to the sun or the elements, a chemical reaction that kept on reacting. Child workers making bouquets of fake flowers became ill, their eyes and skin turning green. People wearing gowns came down with unshakable coughs. In a sunlit parlor lined with green wallpaper, one could watch the dust gather in the sun, unaware that were it to be breathed in, it would begin to destroy a person, starting with the lungs. The arsenic was poison. This lovely shade of green, so natural, so life-affirming, so complimentary of the flesh, was doing that most natural thing, bringing death. It made people very wealthy, turned some envious, and for everyone brought about a poisonous end. Green can be so many things. When we look back at a memory, we attempt to see things for what they were, hoping that perspective will help us achieve accuracy. We bring greater understanding for the complexity of life, it being not wholly this or that, but this as well as that and then some. Curiosity married with compassion can allow us new insights, or it can lead to more confusion, trying to square what is now clear with what was invisible to us then. 
It can be a lot to sit with. One can feel like the walls are out to get us. When we are children, we don't have access to all that is going on around us, and maybe, likely, I'd wager, that's for the best. I can tell you there are things I never want to know, yet sometimes the mind tries to sneak in an image, doesn't it? Whatever you're picturing, know there is something equally awful in my mind, so let's try to think about something else, anything else. Are we all not better off for having the dark energies of the world hidden from us as children? What changes in your being when a place that you consider a place of terrific discovery and formative joy reveals itself years later to have been a cosmic whirlpool of evil? Or if evil is too strong a word, maybe just a haunted place. It can feel as if nothing is ever certain. Even the stones know this. Your experience is only true for you in the moment. This is what happened when that color opened up a world of memories for me. It's a world I'd like to explore with you if you'd be willing to stare at a blotch of green for an hour. Take a deep breath. Let your focus fall somewhere far away in the distance. Say the secret word only you know, and join me now in the place we call the Deep Night. Hello, it's me, Dale Seaver, and I'm green with pleasure to be your host and companion through this next hour of regrets and revelations we call the deep night. You know, thinking of colors, it's no wonder that this green appeared to me. I mean, if I had to name it, I might even call it Gowanus Green. Why, the Gowani is just as calm on top and unsettled below as some of the stories in this episode. We're coming to you tonight, as we always do, from the foul banks of the Gowanus. If I could afford it, I'd buy a pair of those Apple Vision Pro goggles and use it to create a virtual space where I could sail across the Guanas Canal using only my naked virtual body, free of the risk and bad odor and virulent sex disease. The ultimate Superfund Explorer would be way safer than the last time I paddled down that awful stream in a homemade boat made of wax and held together by prayer. Oh, memories! Even then, when we decided to take a boat onto the Guanas, I knew it was a bad idea. Looking back on it, I feel much the same. Sometimes examining a memory, it can be hazy, uncertain. In some cases, when you're able to see something with the clarity of distance, with the wider lens of experience, one can detect the dangers lurking just out of view. This episode, we're going deep into the well of memory, trying to understand a place that, for all its outward projections of calm, was like that one friend who's really into hot yoga, full of suppressed feelings and more than a little rage. A place where even now its scenic splendor is the site of outrageous, shocking acts where a perfect day can be thrown into chaotic disarray in mere seconds. It's also a place that seared a way of knowing life's end into me that I've never shaken. It did make me wonder, can a place be cursed? 
Is that color green which appeared to me so vividly and which conjured such strong memories be the color of ancient earth energies that swirl beneath and through the bucolic setting? The color of the mossy shadows between displaced rocks, the silt that covers the sunken boat, the sky right before a thunderstorm. If that vibrant green is a sign of renewal and hope, might it also suggest something sinister, or at least, like leaky water on a copper pipe, corrosive? The garter snake, though small, did scare me. I had crossed those stone steps hundreds of times, made the trip out to the compost bin plenty, often barefoot, a dash to do the job and then back. I sat on those same rock walls with their lichen and weeds and cold dark gaps big enough for critters and bent sticks till they broke, waiting for each snap with glee, wearing bright red pants and a white shirt with Mickey Mouse on it. The photos of that day, my dad said, were among his favorites. He knew when a photo was a favorite because in those days you'd have them printed, and if it was a good roll, he'd ask for duplicates, and of that moment we have many dupes, some in albums, some tucked among others in thin paper envelopes with a sleeve for the negatives, and the word Kodak on the outside, red letters on a sunflower yellow banner. I never once thought about snakes living there, or in Vermont at all, until I saw that one. But there was at least that one in the nice verdant stretch of grass, the section between two stone walls that led in one direction up to the garden and the pond behind it, up to the fields that Leslie mowed with a giant tractor, the tractor that once got stuck in the pond, a story that would be told forevermore, its details embellished till the tale became legend. But from that point on, having the little snake slither so close and then dart away, I became a little more aware of things that coexisted in this place. And any time I walked through there again... I thought of the snake, looking out for it, nervous for its appearance. A frightening moment, just a moment, which left me forever altered. I found the green, too, when I thought of Earl's coveralls that he wore each day in the summer. He would stand on the edge of the porch, the pipe smoke drifting off in the direction of his weaving studio in the loft of the new barn. He had a handkerchief tied around his neck, making him look like a cross between Charles Nelson Riley and Gomer Pyle. A floppy white fishing hat, if it was sunny, completed the look. And often you'd see Earl in the morning and then at night, but not much in between. He'd be off in the barn, up the stairs, by himself. The bottom floor, which I went into often to fetch a tool or watering can, smelled like the garden section of a hardware store. A heady mix of gasoline, fertilizer, wet metal, and cut grass. Up the stairs, Earl was working on making his rugs. Beautiful throws in all sorts of colors with trippy arcs of deep reds and purples and zigzag patterns. I didn't realize that some of the rugs in the house were his. Some were woven on small wooden looms, some hooked with fuzzy strands of wool sticking out in all directions. I only ever went up there once or twice while he was working, surprised to find such vibrant output from this retired minister who lived most of his time in Chicago and who Helen complained about being a creature of habit, who only ever wanted to go for a swim and have drinks with a small circle of friends. I suspect, and have been persuaded by certain artifacts left behind, that theirs was not entirely a happy union. Some of the electricity had gone out, let's say, at least by the time they came into my orbit. You think a place is one thing, but then it shifts, and you have to be careful where you step. I used to tell people I spent my summers in Vermont, but really it was about two weeks. My mother and I would drive 13 hours from Pennsylvania to Vermont in a single day, stopping in Hartford for some clam chowder at Friendly's, and then pushing on to arrive at the farm in time for dinner. 
It was usually the beginning of August, sweltering in Philadelphia, but up there, up there, the air was already starting to cool. It was the time of year where one could also find pre-season discounts on winter clothing, or maybe it was last-season discounts on whatever was left over. But either way, we always went to Hovey's in St. Johnsbury to pick out new winter coats and some clothes for the upcoming school year. The thing I remember most about Hovey's is the way my grandfather would take pride in introducing me to the salespeople, all of whom he treated like dear friends, even if he'd only met them a minute before. That and the bags, the signature smooth paper bags, light green with dark green stripes and the Hovey's logo swooping across the front. I also vividly remember running under the racks of coats they had in the rear of the store, folding myself back first in between two nylon shells puffed fat with polyfill, and then moving as fast as I could in the narrow non-space where clothing stock met the wall. A soft alley, the fabric of the coats making a whooshing sound, hitting my shoulders as I ran past. Whoosh, 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 whoosh. I made it all the way down one wall and then almost all the way back up the other, completing the full U-shape of the room before one of those friendly store clerks found me and had to let my grandfather know I was in a place where I ought not to be. He would apologize, and I could feel his lazy eye twitch with disappointment. We'd take our bags and check out, my mother retrieving her bright green hubby's charge card from her purse slowly enough for my grandfather to jump in and take care of it with his own bright green hubby's charge card. When I got older, I'd beg to do more things in town, go to the Chinese restaurant, the bookstore, the comic book store if we could find one. But the memories I hold on to most from those trips are the ones from earlier times as a little kid, making ice cream in the old barn, fishing in the pond, catching tiny frogs while sitting on the wooden bridge over the creek, and our walks, long walks along the dirt roads with my mother. She and I would head out in the morning, after breakfast in the weather report, after emptying the compost. The roads that wrapped around the mountain were unpaved, flattened, compacted earth that was often a little muddy, filled with small pebbles in the center, and lined on either side with larger rocks of all variety. There were pockets and depressions that would catch the rainwater, turning them into muddy holes of unknown depths. My grandfather would hit every single one as he drove from the farm to town in his tan Toyota Camry, letting out an exasperated, Oh, oh gosh, that'll take out a tire. My father pointed out once that he seemed to almost aim for them, he would be hitting potholes for miles, like he sawed and drove into them. Which may be true, but maybe the potholes were aiming for him, the dark energies of the place trying to send a message. My mom and I would walk down the main road to the driveway of Christina's house. Christina was a German woman who lived alone, as far as I remember, and was Earl and Helen's closest neighbor, in proximity at least. Most of the houses in that stretch were constructed by one individual, a man with the most New England name ever, J. Moody Quimby. As it turns out, Moody was born in 1893 and lived to be 103, which means he was still around when we were there, living in one of the original homes he'd built. The one Helen would point out as we drove past and said that was old Moody's place. The house I thought was haunted and abandoned, and all this time he was probably just inside reading a book about foraging or something, whatever spry 90-year-olds get up to on a mountainside in Vermont. I'm not certain Christina's house was one of Moody's. It sat sideways to the main road and was a stately kind of place, a little grander than the others. Its white paint made it stand out against the tall oaks and slender maples that surrounded it. Christina's house was magical to me. Inside, there were books from floor to ceiling, art books books that were art, books on top of other books. 
she'd welcome us in and have us sit in her library parlor. I never went to any other part of the house. She was often wearing some kind of beautiful Nordic-inspired ensemble, layered tonal and textual variations in off-white, a cream vest over an ecru sweater with parchment slacks. She had clear blue eyes and blonde hair cut in a bob that grazed her chin when she talked. She was always interested in what we were doing and how we were getting along, and with every question she offered us small pieces of chocolate that were better than any chocolate I'd ever had or had since. She would pop a small square into her mouth, too, letting it dissolve in her cheek as she listened to whatever we were saying about school or summer or swimming at camp, and she encouraged us to be vigilant on our walk, which we had told her the purpose of which was to find a gnome's home, the place where the gnomes were living in the forest. Well, she knew all about gnomes and had seen some good mushrooms that might be able to sustain a gnome for a few years up on the path behind her house. Full of chocolate and ready for gnomes, we said our goodbyes to Christine and went on down the fern-lined path that led to the woods out behind her house. Along the rutted logging trail, we stopped frequently to look for the mushroom subdivisions that Christina had suggested we check out. This one, maybe this one. I was certain we'd see a gnome on one of those walks. There were a lot of good places for a small man to own a home. The 1977 Will Huygen book about gnomes was one I poured over back at my house, so I considered myself an expert. That book was great, and not just for the naked lady gnome picture that maybe counted as the first breast I'd ever seen. How that shaped my experiences with women years later is probably best left unexplored. I accepted its words and illustrations as fact. It was a field guide to the world of gnomes. I fully expected to see a robin flap down, land beside an old log, and offer to mend a tiny gnome's torn jacket using his beak as a needle. These walks could last a long time, me asking about every rock and mushroom and seed pod, my mother doing her best to answer, trying not to lose patience. The green that appeared to me is the same green as the dark spots in the clearing we could see a little further up the path, the grass that was tamped down and bent into a soft circle, a place for the deer to sleep. I tried to picture them all huddled together, walking in circles before settling into themselves and leaning against one another for warmth. Beyond the deer's bed, the woods became close again, and the trail narrowed slightly to the point of being barely there. And then, suddenly, a break in the trees led to a vast hidden field. The shade from the canopy of the trees was replaced by bright rays of sun in every direction. Across the field, tall wild grasses rippled in coordination with the breeze, the wind gliding across the top, providing a lift for hundreds of the dark green grasshoppers leaping into the air. Others must have known about it, but the hidden field felt like a place that we had discovered, a place for just my mom and me and the grasshoppers. Which you could sort of get close to them, but they dart up and off in giant arcs to other parts of the field as soon as they registered your presence. Obscured in this hidden place was a giant rock. You had to walk a little way before you saw it, or at least know where to look. A little to the right of the field, off-center, displaced by glacial transit and rising up out of the grasses. If your mother gave you a boost, and she would, you could sit on the rock or stretch out on it and close your eyes and let the sun be with you and for you, and all you could hear is the wind and the creak and the tiny vibrations of grasshopper legs as they continued leaping from stalk to stalk. Earl and Helen's house had a single black telephone. It sat in its own little area, a boulder in a hidden field, next to a small formica table with two shelves that held a pad or two of paper, a bunch of pens and pencils, and a small leather book for commonly used phone numbers. 
On a wire rack on the bottom was the telephone book for northern Vermont, a white pages and a yellow pages. We'd sometimes use those to call a restaurant or store to find out their hours or if they had room for a table of five. One night, with all the dinner dishes dried and put away, the evening compost taken out, Helen and my grandfather reading in the small parlor that looked out toward the pond, Earl already retired to his bedroom, my mother and I were in our beds but not asleep. The slow stillness of the evening was interrupted by the ringing of that black phone. It was so quiet and so late that the phone startled us all. It was unusual to get a call there any time of day, but it did happen. Almost never at night, though. The ringing was loud, loud enough to be heard if you were in the orchard or out in the garden. I was upstairs, but heard Helen gather herself and pick up the receiver. There may have been an, oh dear, a terribly sorry. I heard the dial tone and the heavy clunk of the phone returning to its cradle. My mother went to find out who it had been, so I went with her. Christina had died, someone said. This is the first death I remember. And it came through the phone. And then, so did all the other deaths. For the rest of my life, my grandfather, my grandmother, my mother, my father, years of getting a call, someone's died. Someone telling me that someone's died. With Christina, I couldn't make it make sense. We had just seen her the year before on our walk. How could someone just be alive and then not alive? It seemed to me there was before the phone ringing when everything was fine, and then after the phone when everything is not fine. I still startle every time I hear one of those loud ringtones, the one that sound exactly like that black phone in Vermont. When the option came to silence my phone, I took it. Vibrate away, just no ringing. I don't want to let the news in. I don't want more moments of fine and then not fine, alive and then not. But. I still have the voicemails left on my phone, the message telling me that my dad has died. I assume that's what it is. I've never listened to it. I have nine unread messages, all related to the few hours around us finding out that he had been gone from people who loved him most. But I can't listen to a single one of them, and I won't play them now either. It's too much. Of course, I feel for the person leaving the message. It's not easy to make that call, but selfishly, I won't listen. I feel obligated to keep them for some reason. Unread, but still there. Marking the time, but I can't delete them. Before voicemail, you just picked up the phone, and I remember every one of those phone calls. You collapse into yourself. Sometimes you just freeze like a deer, a deer wide awake and unable to process heartbreaking information. Maybe every time a deer sees a headlight, they're reminded that death comes for us all, and they're just overwhelmed by the immensity of the thing. So many simple, quiet evenings in places that felt safe, disrupted, thrown off by a phone call, moving from an ordinary moment to one that tugs the corners of your being years later, a wound that never quite heals, one opened and seeping every time you hear a phone ring. The nights in Vermont in August were so clear and dark you could see the glowing dust of the Milky Way. One night, looking up, I saw a UFO. I know it was a UFO because it moved fast in one direction, stopped, and shot off in the other direction the way UFOs do. And then it vanished. Classic UFO behavior from those little green men. <laughs> Standing outside the house with the porch light off, my mother pointed out the constellations, the sisters, the hunter, the flying horse, the crab. I tried to force the dots into the shape of the thing described. 
Later, pouring through a star guide, one with a fold-out chart of the night sky, I could see I was too limited in my attempts to see the objects of the constellations. I had failed to see you could go way outside the lines. What I saw as a boxy horse with a stick neck could indeed be transformed into an elaborate winged stallion, but I guess you really had to have nothing else going on to come up with that, or maybe you were trying to fill up space on an otherwise crowded map. I appreciated my mother's knowledge, gleaned from years of looking up at the night sky, ones in New Mexico, Pennsylvania, New York, and here in Vermont where she went to school, a college kid looking for the same horses and hunters in the dark. One night at the farm I remember being called into the bathroom by her. She was in a robe sitting on the closed toilet. The lights were off and she was looking out the window across the backyard. She waved me closer and pointed at the sky. Meteor shower, she said, and we both watched as bright, fast lines lit up the sky and then went dark, one after the other, white streaks, green streaks, then nothing. Did the dinosaurs look up and see the meteors of their age, clocking a moment of beauty, prompting a faint shudder of fear in their massive flesh, or was it a reliable annual event, regular enough to be set into the evolutionary knowledge of their bodies to the annual arrival of the space stones in the hot months, mean that it was time to migrate to water sources further south, time to move before the cooler air settled in. Until that final meteor, that cosmic phone ringing in the night, the one that brought death in the end of things, disrupting the silence, the routine, the ordinariness of existence. That place on the mountain, under the starry skies where Earl smoked his pipe and my grandfather fawned over Helen, warming endless cups of coffee in the microwave, listening to the weather radio, the farm. It used to exist for me as something where nothing really happened, a retreat, a calm and reliable place of unshifting features. Even now, if you look on Google Maps and pull that little yellow man into street view, you can stand on the dirt road and look at the chain across the driveway where the creek flows hurriedly underneath. I wish Street View came with street sounds so you could stand there and virtually listen to the place. But like that creek, something was always in motion at the farm, faster than I could even see. The place I thought I knew held all sorts of surprises, shocking things that seemed to arise from nowhere. One year, two men broke in and stole most of the furniture, including that little green telephone table. They took advantage of the winter months when the house sat empty and cleared it out, selling things to various antique places across New England. My grandfather was deputized for the day and rode with the sheriff as they finally tracked them down. They were even able to reclaim a few pieces and put them back where they had been before. Driving past their low blue shack of a house, the place where the criminals lived, made me queasy for years after. It was on the main road back into town, so we passed it coming and going. It's mostly overgrown now, reclaimed by the green of the landscape. One year, Helen discovered she had a brain tumor. Her shaking was partly because of that. She had to have surgery, which was scary, and I dreaded hearing the phone ring that summer. One year, my mother and I got in a fight. I was a teenager, and I didn't want to be there. Everyone was disappointed in me for wanting to go home. We left early. It was a longer and quieter than usual 13-hour car ride back home. One year, I went there with Galinda to show her this place that meant so much to me. And no one was there, so we left a note on the car windshield with my phone number saying that we were friends of the family, and we walked around the property. I didn't get as far as the hidden field, but we walked up to the pond and looked in. 
The rowboat that had sunk in there was gone, but the pond was deep and clear, having been recently dredged and cleaned. I went behind the barn to relieve myself in the tall grasses, as I had done as a kid. I unzipped my fly, and just as I did, a flock of excited wild turkeys came noisily wobbling through, scaring me as I tried to finish up, grabbing at my zipper while running to get back inside the car. In 2013, at Christina's house, the local elementary school principal was shot by his ex-wife's husband while she hid in the basement. The ex-husband then turned the gun on himself. The SWAT teams that arrived soon after were too late. All they found were two bodies, one bleeding into the grass in the yard, the other into the floorboards, where years earlier Christina had welcomed us in, past walls lined with books for a square of chocolate. These things just kept happening to my place. Interruptions to the quiet of my hidden field, sharp-edged and rough, darting in across my neural pathways, a snake in the grass, altering where I step and changing what I think when I do ordinary things. On alert now in ways I never was before and never had to be. This place in the middle of nowhere, was it emanating all these signs all along? Sending out great solar storm-like plumes of cautionary energy, urging us to go away? If it was, we'd never paid attention. We kept going back, bathing ourselves in its uneasy presence. That time I went with Galinda, when the turkeys came after me, I revisited one of the farm's most striking features, a rotting, crooked tree trunk that rose up from a tangle of creeping vines. It had been hit by lightning years before. Its top half burned and split apart, and it crashed to the ground in a smoldering mess of leaves and unripened butternuts. But the rest of it still stood there. The way its slender, jagged branches met the sky made for menacing forms against the sunset. And when that green color first appeared to me, it was so soothing to me, so evocative of that happy time in my young life, flooding the dopamine troughs of my brain, overwhelming them, all that time spent with my mother, discovering the world, oblivious about the harms and evils that swirled around us. In retrospect, though, Something was off during this time, something this green color allowed me to see once again. My dad didn't come up with us on those trips. He did early on, once or twice. Mostly he stayed away by himself, working, then coming home. Years later, I found out that he felt unwelcome, charged with doing too many acts of manual labor, always tasked with fixing something or building something for Helen. It left him no room to relax. He also told me that while we were away, those were some of his unhappiest times. Nights where he would sit alone in the house, lights off, playing guitar, trying to distract himself from the suicidal thoughts that threatened always to pull him under, away from everything, giving himself over to the vines and the rot. This color that appeared to me brought me to all these memories, some that still affect me, Knowing my father had such deep ache inside him, learning that death was mysterious at an early age, no more predictable than a meteor. It was a gateway into realizing the obvious that nothing was ever fixed. The green was the color of the pond at night, the pond that had a deep underground pipe that fed the racing creek. Even the pond was not as still as itself. It contained multitudes, along with a sunken rowboat. The pond shimmering in green on the first cool night of late summer also reflected the stars above, which were always in motion, the sisters and crabs and horses with wings, the meteors and alien spaceships streaking by, leaving long trails of dust. Everything could be found in that green. All of us, shifting in relation to one another, moving through time, unknowable really except for in the most fleeting of moments.
fringe. That's my meditation for you. A rumination may be more apt on color, nostalgia, uncertainty, on shifting perspectives of what we try to know of ourselves, all of us just existing, trying to be whoever we are at any given moment. I remain in a state of flux. Thinking about these moments when the routine was interrupted is helpful in remembering that the routine may be the real interruption. I trust you are thriving, manifesting, and moving forward in your own time with empathy and light. If a color appears to you, I urge you to follow it and let me know what you find. Till our next time together, remember that although this deep night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. Deep Night with Dale is independently produced, performed, and written by James Bewley. Podcast theme by Via Mardot. Season artwork by Victor Bizar Gomez. Photography this season by Emma Mead. New website design by Maria Belen of Bella Mona Designs. All of these artists are wonderful and worth looking up and following on social media or hiring for your next great thing. For everything Dale and Deep Night, true denizens of the deep should visit deepnightshow.com or tune into the show on Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts can be found. Remember to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and follow Dale on Instagram at Dale Seaver. Thanks for paying a visit to the deep night.